Welcome back to the Avenue's History Podcast. This episode is entitled, Brinsmead is Back. Last time we talked about Vietnam and how Seventh-day Adventists handled the war. Some served as combatants in the United States, many as medics, and still others volunteered to be a part of Project White Coat. In Vietnam itself, work among foreign missionaries and Vietnamese Adventists went ahead full steam despite the war, despite the risks. It was, as the French say, not easy. But the church and its members, I believe, acquitted themselves with courage. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to catch up on what happened there. For us, it's time to catch up with the Brinsmead brothers, John and Robert, and their awakening movement. Now, the movement had increasingly concerned church leaders throughout the 1960s. We discussed some of that the last time we talked about them. But church leaders were more or less powerless to stop it. Bob Brinsmead's later friends, the Anglican Jeffrey Paxton, joked that church leaders saw Bob as, quote-unquote, the Al Capone of Adventism. <laughs> Bob was clever and charismatic and easily ran circles around the I'm going to put these in air quotes, square church leaders, okay? The brothers had a hold on a certain slice of the Adventist public, a slice historian Richard Swartz identified as comprising new members filled with zeal, as well as some distinguished members who had become wary of church leadership. Some of these members who had become wary of church leadership were doctors or others who had means and could support Brinsmead and his movement. But Brinsmead's movement was also filled with Adventists who felt that the church had drifted away from its conservative origins. These are people who thought that questions on doctrine represented a departure from the true path of the church. Robert J. Wheeland had pointed that out. M.L. Andreasen had pointed that out. Now the Brinsmeads were pointing that out, at least in some aspects. Okay, Their critiques of questions on doctrine were not all the same, but nevertheless, they contributed to this feeling that questions on doctrine really represented a departure from historic Adventism. And in these years, the church, the Adventist church, was vulnerable to being outflanked on the right. And perhaps that's the reason why Robert H. Pearson and his administration shifted the church harder to the right in the late 1960s. They were tired of getting passed in the right lane. But that conservative shift under Pearson didn't mean that Brinsmead was now back in the family. It did bring Wheeland and Short closer to the family because, well, Pearson's kid and Donald Short's kid were married to each other. But it didn't help Brinsmead very much. Adventist leaders were horrified to discover that Brinsmead's organization had accepted tithe dollars. That was then, as it is now, a huge red flag in the Seventh-day Adventist church. If you want to not get along with church leaders, simply let your organization accept tithe from church members. But the Brinsmeads movement rolled on, in part, I think, at least, because they answered the big question confronting mid-century Adventism, which was, why hasn't Jesus returned a hundred years after 1844? Of course, now by the late 1860s, we're at 120 years past 1844. 
brings me, like Wieland and like Andreasen, was calling the church to double down on those unique doctrines which made Adventists feel special and which made Adventists feel ready for Jesus. One Brinsmead follower thus wrote in the letter to church leaders, quote, We have turned our backs on the temple, the sanctuary. It is such a neglected subject, it is hardly ever mentioned anymore. Only in the sanctuary awakening message is the call to prepare for this momentous event being faithfully sounded, end quote. Now, Two Adventist historians, two historians, Bull and Lockhart, cite a survey conducted in the late 1960s where 44% of Adventists believed that the second coming was getting less emphasis than it used to. Now, of course, it's impossible to know if it really was getting less emphasis than it used to, but that was the perception of nearly half of church members. Brinsmead had cheekily printed a giant poster designed to mimic Martin Luther's 95 Theses and dedicated it to the Bible scholars at Andrews University. It contained, instead of 95 Theses, 40 propositions or errors which Brinsmead charged the church with teaching. It was a brutal document. It cited as an error, for instance, quote, that Adventism is well on course to finish the work, end quote, so that Jesus could come. Wrong! Brinsmead responded, quote, fourth generation Adventism is headed down the same path that has already brought three generations to the grave, end quote. At every opportunity, church leaders touted the record number of baptisms and tithe dollars, and we've talked about that in previous episodes of the podcast. They love numbers. Yet, it was easy to point out, Jesus hadn't come back yet, despite all of this success year after year after year after year. So Brinsmead definitely represented those who felt that church leaders were out of touch with reality. Every general conference session, you say, we're succeeding, we're growing, we're getting into more territories. Jesus is about to come soon. And yet, general conference session after session, it doesn't seem like we're any closer to Jesus returning. We need to, we need to stop and think about this because something is wrong. You keep telling us we're succeeding, that we're winning, but we don't seem to be getting anywhere. Something's wrong. So what's wrong in Adventism? Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? So Brinsmead thought he found this weak spot in the church's armor, right? We haven't succeeded. We're failing. And the 40 propositions are quintessential Brinsmead. It's at once a straightforward attack combined with a very colorful theatrical style. If the 40 propositions were the new 95 theses, then Brinsmead was the new Martin Luther, in 1969, the president of the British Union thought he finally had a handle on Robert Brinsmead. For over 10 years now, Brinsmead had been touring Adventism with his deeply conservative version of Adventist theology. And we've talked about that in some previous episodes. Now, the president of the British Union believed that Brinsmead's, quote, doctrines themselves are based on extreme interpretation of Orthodox Adventist teachings. They concentrate on a narrow section of our faith and give emphases that distort truth and produce error. The subject of the sanctuary, for instance, receives so much attention that other vital topics are neglected and a dangerous imbalance results, end quote. Now, I believe that we sometimes need to see an extreme version of ourselves in order to see ourselves clearly. It's like a common TV trope. The uptight control freak character meets a new character in an episode who is even more uptight and even more of a control freak. And so the, the main character tells this new character to just chill out. 
only to realize that that's what everyone else has been telling him all along. So the lesson at the end of the episode is, yeah, maybe I need to chill out too. That's the symmetry of the sitcom. It doesn't always work out so cleanly in history. We are not always capable of taking our own medicine or seeing ourselves clearly in the mirror. Nevertheless, the Union president's analysis of Brinsmead's theology is insightful. Heresy is not always believing the wrong thing. Sometimes we go astray when we hyper-focus on a narrow slice of good theology. Sometimes we go astray when we overemphasize some parts of a good theology to the exclusion of other good parts. Truth, he might say, is as much about the right balance as it is about the right ideas. The British Union president ended his article by claiming that Brinsmead and his followers believed that good Adventist members were on their way to Babylon, a claim that could be relied upon to cause any red-blooded Adventist reader to snort in disgust. We're the remnant church. We're not Babylon. You're Babylon. Sounds like a fun argument to have. The ministry had gone after Brinsmead a month before. The Lake Union Herald had several months prior to that. They had advertised a tract that the General Conference had published way back in 1961, which was designed to expose the errors of Brinsmead. The pressure was on for loyal church members to avoid anything to do with Brinsmead. One division recommended to the General Conference that one of their missionaries, who was on furlough, not be allowed to return to their post until he clarified where he stood on the Brinsmead issue. Bill Johnson, the later long-serving editor of the Adventist Review, who recently passed away, had been a fellow student with Brinsmead at Avondale College in Australia before going on to be a missionary in India. Naturally, when the pastors in Johnson's area had questions about Brinsmead, because, hey, he was known around the world, well, they asked Bill Johnson for a report of his old classmate. Johnson made it clear that Brinsmead was wrong, and the Southern Asia Tidings, the division newspaper, published Johnson's opposition. Why should a division paper care about what happened at a local pastor's meeting? Well, they did when Brinsmead was the subject, apparently. This was the time to make your position clear on the Brinsmead issue. The church's loyal soldiers were lining up for battle. But no sooner had the army formed to assault Brinsmead's position that they discovered that Brinsmead wasn't there. In 1970, Brinsmead abandoned his hyper-conservative theology and embraced a more evangelical strain of Adventism. His friend, the Anglican Jeffrey Paxton, called Brinsmead's uh, change of heart a, quote, rediscovery of the Reformation, end quote. Brinsmead had been challenged by what has been called the triumvirate of church scholars who stood against him. Of course, there were, there were many who wrote against Brinsmead, but three stand out. They are Edward Heppenstall, Hans LaRondel, and Desmond Ford. Now, Desmond Ford did his best to counteract his old friend's influence in Australia. They, too, have been classmates, but Ford preferred to respond to Brinsmead gently and often without attacking him by name. And occasionally, the two would tussle, as Brinsmead loved nothing more than to defend himself, but friends they remained. When Bob Brinsmead returned to Australia, he and Ford would go for a walk, discuss theology, have a meal together, because for Des Ford, it wasn't personal, and it never was. Heppenstall in America had a front row seat 
because that's where Bob Brinsmead was based, and so Heppenstall did a lot of the heavy lifting there. Whereas Brinsmead had said that perfection was necessary for salvation, Heppenstall had famously said in 1963 that, quote, absolute perfection and sinlessness cannot be realized here and now, end quote. Now, as Malcolm Bull and Keith Lockhart argue in Seeking a Sanctuary, I referenced them earlier, Brinsmead was much closer to traditional Adventism here than Heppenstall was on the topic of perfection. But because Brinsmead was seen as such a nuisance to church leaders, Heppenstall's more relatively radical position that humans cannot be perfect in this life was seen as an antidote to Brinsmeadism, and it didn't raise red flags except with maybe a few like Herbert Douglas. Anyways, when Brinsmead switched sides in the early 1970s, he embraced the Protestant roots of Adventism. Whereas he had agreed with Robert J. Wieland that Adventists had an understanding of righteousness by faith that was advanced compared to the Reformers, now Brinsmead believed that Adventists had obscured the Reformation and sought to recover the true meaning of righteousness by faith. This served that evangelical Anglican observer of Adventism, Jeffrey Paxton, who cast the Adventist situation in the 1970s in terms of a new Reformation. Quote, I would say unequivocally that the issue facing the Adventist church today is the same issue that faced Luther in the 16th century. End quote. Now, Paxton was writing this in the 70s. It could very well have been written by Walter Martin in the 1950s, right? The careful listener will note that I said that when Brinsmead fixated on 1844 as the foundation for Adventism, he was the new Luther. Now that he embraced the Reformation as the foundation for Adventism, well, he was still the new Luther. When Bob Brinsmead published a book on righteousness by faith in 1976, it was published by the, by the Wittenberg Steam Press Publishing Association, as if, you know, he was in Wittenberg. Brinsmead, perhaps more than anyone else in Adventist history until this point, was his own brand. You got to think that if TikTok or Instagram were around back then, he would have been really good at it. Paxton, who traveled widely speaking to groups of Adventists, urged church leaders to be thankful for Brinsmead's agitations. He said, quote, It is a very worrying state when people walk about in a complacent zombieism, looking as if they were on perpetual ecclesiastical drugs, end quote. <laughs> perpetual ecclesiastical drugs. What a memorable turn of phrase. Paxton really was a master of these phrases. This is totally not relevant to this episode, but I have to share another of his sayings that I really love. In one of his talks, Paxton said, quote, Adventists are like rabbits. You have to go into the bush to find them. You know, you get in the Land Rover and go up a great steep cliff, and you might see a yak on one side and a yak on another side, and when you get there, why, there's an Adventist, and they have terrific food, end quote. <laughs> you can get a sense, I hope, for why many Adventists enjoyed listening to Paxton, this outsider who was perpetually studying, talking with, involving himself in Adventism, but I digress. Okay, so I think Heppenstall in particular began to get to Brinsmead. Why do I think that? Well, because Heppenstall sort of introduced this concept of original sin into Adventism. I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek. And Brinsmead began using that term in his own theology as the 1960s wore on. But it'd be wrong, of course, to say that Brinsmead simply came over to Heppenstall's side. 
Bob Brinsmead is his own man, and I dare say that everything he's ever done in his life has been on his own timetable and for his own reasons. Now, Brinsmead began explaining his theological pivot in the spring of 1972 when he gave a lengthy summary of his previous beliefs. He was proud that his message had reached thousands of Adventists, saying that it, quote, became the most joyful news they had heard since becoming Seventh-day Adventists, end quote. So he wasn't regretting his theology. He wasn't saying, I was wrong, forgive me. On the contrary, he gave himself credit for restoring the sanctuary message to its rightful seat in the Parthenon of Adventist theology. Okay, fine. But what went wrong? Why did Robert Brinsmead change? Well, let's let him explain it. Quote, many of the arguments surrounding the awakening finally settled around the matter of the perfecting of the saints. Our critics felt that this was our most vulnerable point. The more vigorously this area was attacked, the more vigorously we defended it, end quote. Based on what we've covered so far, you know very well which theologians specialized in critiquing Brinsmead's perfectionism, Edward Hebenstahl. Although, credit goes to Hans Laurendel and Ford, who both pushed Brinsmead on this point as well. Brinsmead summarized the argument like this, and I do apologize if you aren't into Adventist theology. It is really necessary to understand Adventist history, but I try to spare you as much as I can. Hebenstahl had argued that it was impossible for human beings to be perfect before the second coming. Brinsmead had basically responded by saying that how was the final generation to stand through the tribulation without a heavenly mediator, someone interceding for them. This was a crucial bit of Adventist theology, that the final generation would have such victory over sin by the grace of God, they would always add that, that Jesus no longer needed to plead his blood on their behalf. They could stand without needing Christ to intercede for them. And Brinsmead added, well, this appeared to be our most powerful argument against Hepenstall. Right? How can how can this true, be true? How can we stand without a mediator if what you're saying is true? And they accused Hepenstall of unraveling Adventist theology. But Brinsmead went on, quote, It will come as a surprise to some, and quite a shock to others, that I now state in the plainest possible language, Dr. Hepenstall was correct on this point, end quote. Boom. Bombshell. Now, being Brinsmead, he had to add that Hepenstall didn't convince him that he was wrong, only that Hepenstall just happened to be right. Brinsmead insisted that he arrived at the conclusion that Hepenstall was right through his own study of the Protestant reformers in the New Testament. Now, I have to say, it seems really ungenerous if you were to say to me, Matthew, you didn't convince me, you just pointed me to the evidence which convinced me. Okay, whatever, man. <laughs> Still, for Brinsmead, that was still giving Hepenstall a lot of credit. He didn't give a lot of credit often, so just saying that Hepenstall was right on this point is a really big deal. Like I said, Brinsmead was his own man, and he never wanted to be seen as dependent on anyone else's ideas. If he came to a conclusion on a particular point, it's because he studied it, not because somebody else said it better than he could. Now, Brinsmead gave Wheeland and Short some credit, too. You remember them from way back in 1950 when they insisted that the church had gone astray for rejecting 1888. Brinsmead had agreed with Wieland that Adventists were far ahead of Paul and Luther on the subject of righteousness by faith, though he didn't give them much credit then for having shaped his thought. But now, Brinsmead said that Wieland's claim was, quote, an astounding statement 
Few of us would be as bold as Wieland and Short in saying that the 1888 message was in advance of Paul, end quote. Brinsme now got to the heart of the matter. The Adventist message on righteousness by faith represented by A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner back in the day was simply a restoration of what the Reformers had said. Brinsme called Jones and Wagner grasshoppers compared to Martin Luther. He said that some of Wieland and Short's theology quote, reads like it comes right out of the Council of Trent, end quote. Clearly, Brinsmead was now seeing everything, as Paxton wrote, in light of the Protestant Reformation. And to be fair, he did believe Adventists had a slightly better grasp of righteousness by faith than the Reformers. He wasn't willing to, to unravel all of Adventism's contributions in this topic, but he also believed that Adventists had tried to build on this doctrine in ways that perverted it. Brinsmead shifted on other topics as well, such as the nature of Christ, although the change there might not be so dramatic. He now praised questions on doctrine and disparaged M. L. Andreasen, the great Dane. Quote, Although Andreasen could marshal a lot of Adventist tradition to his side, he was dead wrong in opposing questions on doctrine, end quote, on the nature of Christ. Can you imagine a church leader saying something that straightforward publicly? Brinsmead didn't care if it riled people up. To him, it was the truth, so say it. Anticipating that he was going to be unfavorably compared to Adventist pioneers who thought differently on this point, Brinsmead said, quote, As far as theological knowledge is concerned, the pioneers were not giants, but children. End quote. That sure could shock some people, as I'm sure it did, but Brinsmead went on to say that the pioneers grew over time, just like the early Christians. Our job as Adventists is not to go back to the pioneers' position, but to keep growing, to pick up where they left off and keep moving forward. Now, as you can tell, all of this was a bit of an effort to re-engineer the understanding of the past. Okay, so you change a bit of your theology. This just raises questions. How do you relate to Ella White now? What are the implications for 1844? How does it affect your relationship to the church leaders? Brinsmead spends much of his time answering those questions. And it's not uncommon, right? If you decided that um, you're now going to become a vegetarian, well, you know, not what are you going to do at Thanksgiving if you're American? Or what are you going to do when you go out to your favorite restaurant? You no longer can eat your favorite food, right? It, it, when you make a change like that, it just raises questions of how you're going to relate to a bunch of things in your life now that you've made this change. As Brinsmead saw it, his evangelical turn in the early 1970s was a repudiation of what he called, quote, the tendency to be suspicious of the entire doctrinal heritage of the church, divinity of Christ, trinity, atonement of the cross, justification by faith only, etc., end quote. That is, he saw himself as planting Adventism more firmly in the historical stream of Christian thought. It was, you might say, a defense of tradition, of Christian tradition. This was a very evangelical thing to do. Adventism was not some new thing in history that popped up in 1844. It was part of something bigger and older than itself. Or to put it in another way, Brinsmead moved from measuring things by the Adventist standard to measuring Adventists by the Protestant standard, at least in this area. I find Brinsmead's turn fascinating because it gives us an example of how much our presuppositions shape our conclusions. Also, it's a really rare thing. Wieland and Short arrived at their conclusions about 1888, I believe, because their 
frame of reference was almost exclusively what Ellen White wrote about those years. That's all that mattered. She is a prophet. So whatever she says about this 1888 and the, and the years that follow it must be true. And that's really all that matters. So it didn't matter if people who were there testified and said, we've accepted 1888. It was a glorious experience to them. If Ellen White said that the church rejected the message of righteousness by faith in 1888, then it was rejected. It doesn't matter if people testified that we actually accepted it, you know, this, that, or the other. I'm, I'm really oversimplifying here, so forgive me. The response to Wheeland and Short eventually was to widen that frame of reference to include other testimony, such as, as I mentioned, people who were there, historical details, whatever it may be. Brinsmead's original frame of reference was basically 1844 to the present. To paraphrase the great Ron Swanson, history began in 1844, everything before that was a mistake. But now Brinsmead was widening his frame of reference to take in the Protestant Reformation. I just got a new camera, so maybe this is a good analogy, not that you can see it. It's like if you zoom in on a subject, you focus on it, you compose for it, it's really, really well lit, well, that subject is the most important thing in that shot. But let's say after getting all of that set up, you zoom out. And now that you've zoomed out, maybe we see an alien spaceship off to the left and a Tyrannosaurus Rex on the right. Well, once you zoom out, you also let more features in. You let the sun in, right? Maybe the sun was, was cut out of the previous shot. Well, that's going to change your lighting. Maybe now that your lighting isn't good, maybe the dinosaur is out of focus. What was a really good, perfectly lit, perfectly composed picture is now out of balance, out of focus, poorly lit. And you realize now I got to redo everything. I got to change the settings of my camera to, you know, maybe put an ND filter on or something to deal with that sun. I need to, you know, move people around in the shot to make it a good photograph again. And I guess what I'm trying to say, despite this being a perfect or an imperfect example, rather, is that your frame of reference matters. As soon as you zoom out to include more, more things in your shot, more factors, more variables, more information, it can change your shot entirely. So once Brinsmead zoomed out so that the Protestant Reformation was now in his shot in addition to Adventism, now you've, now you've got to balance this out. Now you've got to recompose and adjust this shot. And I guess to take it one step further, if you're somebody in the old camp where Brinsmead used to be, you're thinking to yourself, why are you screwing up this picture? We were focused on the subject. It was well lit. Everything was great. Why are you moving things around now? And for Brinsmead, because I'm taking a wider shot now. I got to get things reset. Anyways, I hope that that helps make things a little clearer. If, if Adventism is the measuring stick, then it's easy to measure other Christians and see that they fall short. But once you bring in Luther and Calvin and you start reading their writings, suddenly you're comparing, what does Luther write about righteousness by faith? And then what does A.T. Jones say about righteousness by faith? And you might realize, Luther wrote an awful lot on this subject, and he thought a lot of deep thoughts about this subject that maybe Jones didn't emphasize or wasn't aware of because he didn't read Luther. So now you're realizing, okay, the Protestant reformers had a lot of good things to say about this subject that Adventists were either unaware of or didn't appreciate or didn't emphasize. And now your calculus of 
we've got the best message in righteousness. My faith goes to, you know, we, we've left a lot out. There's a lot we could still learn about righteousness by faith from the reformers, even if we did add a few good things ourselves. That's my kind of paraphrase way of explaining Brinsmead's move here. But I think the question is, what does Brinsmead's move, his, his change, mean for the whole awakening movement? Was it all a big error, as Brinsmead's opponents might say? Had he led thousands of people astray? You know by now, Brinsmead didn't believe that. Quote, could God have allowed the worldwide awakening disturbance to wake us all up? End quote. Yeah, I think you know he said yes. It was used by God to wake people up. So now he's shifting gears. And from here on out, he would be focusing on winning other Christians, not just fellow Adventists. Brinsmead closed his nearly, he almost wrote about 100 pages on why he changed and what this means and all of that. And he added these lines, quote, And to my friends I say, let us not become narrow and bound up in our own specialized religious provincialism. Let us not magnify things small and minimize things great, end quote. Now, if you're a church leader, someone at the general conference, you're, you're going to joke on this statement because for more than 10 years, you've been saying that Brinsmead was making mountains out of molehills. So church leadership, by the way, became one frame or one object in Brinsmead's new wider focus that didn't get readjusted. Church leaders still served as Brinsmead's foil. He could continue to criticize church leaders for not promoting the church's distinctive sanctuary doctrine and now claim that they were wrong on righteousness by faith too, if he wanted. That part didn't change. Now, in 1974, the Adventist Review released a special issue called the Righteousness by Faith issue. Now, I'm sure this had nothing whatsoever to do with what Robert Brinsmead was preaching. Of course it did. But it would be wrong to say this was solely due to Brinsmead. Ever since 1888, the church would raise the flag of Righteousness by Faith and give it a good wave. And then it might be less emphasized for a while before someone else would pick it up, give it another good wave. But the church lacked a consistent and clear understanding of righteousness by faith, nearly a hundred years after the famous 1888 General Conference session, which first drew attention to it. This deficiency was noted in 1976 when the church released a statement which began with the line, quote, For decades, there has been a desire by Seventh-day Adventists to have a clear statement on the doctrine of righteousness by faith, end quote. That statement sparked a huge response when it was published in the Review, about what righteousness by faith means, and we'll talk about that in a future episode, to be sure. Suffice it to say for now, righteousness by faith was a hot topic in the 1970s in Adventism. Now, I thought about explaining the theology here so you could understand why this topic was so important and neglected in Adventism, but I couldn't seem to do it in a way that didn't just take five or ten minutes of your time just in this deep dive of theology. It would be a lot of explanation to just understand one point in our story here. So I found what I hope is another good way, a couple of short, very, very short stories that hopefully highlight the experience of many Adventists back then and the need for understanding righteousness by faith. Okay, so in one of the articles in the Righteousness by Faith special issue of the Review, Jonathan Butler wrote, Quote, many Seventh-day Adventists, though splendid, productive Christians whom God accepts as his sons and daughters, 
somehow cannot accept themselves as fully within God's family, end quote. One Betty Holbrook wrote in her article that, quote, somehow as a young girl, I had the concept of God loves you if. The words God loves you, however, were completely obscured by that tiny word, if, end quote. Now I would say in all fairness that most, if not all, Adventist theologians and leaders would have been horrified, even back then, at the thought that their members didn't see themselves as fully within God's family, or that there might have been a condition attached to God's love. The church certainly didn't explicitly teach those things. But you're clever, and you noticed I said the word explicitly. Sometimes we teach things we don't intend to teach, don't we? And the strong emphasis on perfectionism, especially in the 1960s, can have side effects. Note, boy, wouldn't it be great if we listed spiritual side effects on certain bits of theology? Like, eternal hellfire may cause terror, anger, despair, and in rare cases, atheism. And so, Adventists could talk about salvation by faith alone, but there was also another message which they didn't intend, which suggested that Christians who don't keep the Sabbath cannot be saved. They denied this in QOD, but it was still an impression many, 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 many people had. This is what aggravated those evangelicals in the 1950s, right? It seems then, as it still seems to many non-Adventists today or ex-Adventists today, that Adventism still speaks out of both sides of its mouth. Now, some of that doublespeak was, I believe, present in the special issue of the review. Herbert Douglas, for instance, decried those Christians who merely aim at not sinning rather than totally overcoming sin in their lives. Quote, man is left with the assurance of forgiveness, but not with confidence of victory over sin. End quote. He goes on to say, quote, the tragic error of this theology is that Jesus becomes the sinner's savior, but not truly his example. End quote. Which, of course, leads one to wonder, what's wrong with having the assurance of forgiveness? And isn't Jesus being your savior enough? Jonathan Butler went out in the opposite direction as Douglas. He said that salvation is like marriage. You may argue with your spouse, but after an argument, no one asks you, are you still married? One argument or two or three or 20 does not end your marriage. Nor, Butler argued, are you suddenly lost after making a mistake? For his part, Ken Wood, the review editor, wrote, quote, steadily like leaven, the Holy Spirit uses the word to transform the thoughts change the inclinations, subdue the harsh traits of character, provide new motivations, implant new values, and create deep desires for holiness. This is righteousness by faith, end quote. And of course, this led readers to ask whether or not we are declared righteous like the thief on the cross the moment we believed, what many call justification. And what Wood was describing was the work of a lifetime, or what many called sanctification. So is righteousness by faith justification? Is it sanctification? Is it both? That special issue did not clarify this for some people. Now, on the one hand, I think we can admire the fact that the review took on a big theological topic and tried to lead the discussion in the church. It's been uh, a little while since that has happened in the review. On the other hand, I'm not sure the review succeeded because they didn't send a clear univocal message on righteousness by faith. Heppenstall certainly wasn't permitted to write an article in there. 
And as a result, it would be a topic under discussion for the rest of the decade in the pages of the Review and doubtless in many, many local Adventist churches as well. Even today, I would say, at least from my own experience, Adventists are not clear on this subject. Brinsmead, of course, had an answer to these controversial points in the review, an answer which, by the way, he wrote even before that issue came out. To Herb Douglas, worrying about losing Jesus as our example, Brinsmead said that, of course, Jesus is our example, but not in everything. We cannot make atonement for others. We cannot forgive others their sins. Nor, Brinsmead said, can we live perfectly sinless lives. And this is because, of course, for Brinsmead and Heppenstall and Ford and others, Christ had a sinless human nature. He was free of original sin. We are not. And to people like Wood, Brinsmead said, quote, The essence of Roman Catholic legalism is to depend on the work of inward renewal for acceptance with God. End quote. In other words, can't we just be declared righteous the moment we surrender ourselves to God? Now, I don't say all of this to suggest that Brinsmead was right, Wood was wrong, Douglas was wrong. That's for you to decide. I'm just giving you some of the comments that were made by both sides and the responses that were had. So Brinsmead was back with a new emphasis and a new audience. He was predominantly focused on reaching other Christians in these years. And I believe that he helped raise the issue of righteousness by faith in the church again, just as Wieland had done in the 1950s. And the conversation that ensued showed that in 20 years since Wieland had brought it up, the church still wasn't sending a clear and consistent message. Perhaps that's to be expected in such a diverse denomination that lacks a central authoritative figure at its head. But it had real consequences for its members. Members who, as we've seen, often grew up unsure of whether God loved and accepted them. And that wasn't what the church intended to teach, to be sure, but it was too common, I believe, to say that it was merely an aberration. Walter Martin noticed it, so did others in the decades ahead. But righteousness by faith was only one issue facing the church these days. Over the next few episodes, we're going to talk about more of them. These are issues which created rifts in the church and remain unresolved to this day. Because the goal in these, this next series of episodes, beginning with this one, is again to help us understand the Adventist church today and the things that we're wrestling with, where those issues came from. It's not to rehash or relitigate whether Brinsby was right or wrong, whether Wood or Douglas or Heppenstall were right or wrong, but just to understand why are we talking about these things the way that we're talking about them today? Where does this come from? And so that's what these next few episodes are going to be about. And yes, they caused rifts in the church that remain to this day, and that's going to especially be true of the next one, an issue we haven't discussed much since we were talking about it back in the 1920s, that is evolution and the age of the earth. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. 
Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.